hormones impact every system in your body. So there's a lot of ways that hormone imbalances can show up. When you're having penetrative sex and it's painful, you usually need alternatives, but you also need to know what is going on. PCOS is what this goes by. Roughly 70% have insulin resistance. You should shift and change your body for the male preference. I don't know, I'm raising two boys. Maybe the messaging should be, they should be body literate and like female body positive. Vaginas are supposed to smell like vaginas. Vaginas are supposed to taste like vaginas. It's really funny how society's like, armpits smell, pass. You know, groin smell, if they belong to men, pass. If you're a woman, you should never smell. Like you should always smell delightful and wonderful. And I'm like, says who? to Diary of an Empath. My next guest is Dr. Jolene Brighton. She is a hormone expert, a nutrition scientist, a renowned naturopathic physician, best-selling author, and advocate for empowering women to take control of their health and well-being. Dr. Brighton is the author of the book, Is This Normal? Great book, so you guys got to go get it. It is a non-judgmental guide to creating hormone balance, eliminating unwanted symptoms, and building the sexual desire that you crave. Dr. Brighton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, likewise. So I've been on this kick of hormone health lately, and a lot of my listeners know that a couple months back I had surgery. I had a uh, benign tumor on my right ovary, and what was interesting is that I really didn't have many symptoms. I just kind of had this like intuitive feeling that something was going on in my body, and I was gaslit by the medical community, and I had to fight for an ultrasound. I had to fight for the MRI. Sure enough, had my ovary removed, had the tumor removed, and so hormone Hormone health has now become the centerfold of my life. Um, I would love to kind of start out with that. What is hormone health? Why is it important for women? Why should we pay attention to it? Oh, gosh. You know, I think so often the narrative that we get around hormones is really far too myopic. Um, it is very much focused on making babies, having periods, without really the service being done of explaining to women that you have receptors for your hormones all over your body. And these hormones are signaling information about your environment. They're orchestrating how your organs function, how healthy they are, what your cells are doing. And they're part of how we not just live a long life, but live a very healthy life as well. And so the big question is like, what aren't hormones doing? I know that there's a lot of, I don't know if it's, is it Western medicine doctors that um, tend to not take it as seriously or say like, okay, well, you really don't need to be paying attention to this until you're going into menopause. And I find that younger women who are going through hormone issues, you know, they'll go get their labs done and it's like, oh, your labs are normal. So mm -hmm. at what age or at what point should we start looking at our hormones and, and taking it seriously? And how do we know there's an issue? Okay. This is such a great question because, I mean, what you just explained, even in your own story, and firstly, I am really, I'm really sad to hear that was your experience, and yet it is such a common experience. And it shouldn't be as relatable as it is, but it's absolutely relatable. Right. And so often, the way the United States approaches things in their healthcare is that when things are so bad that you can't handle it anymore, then you go to your doctor and then maybe your doctor does something about it. Mm -hmm. What I'm really trying to shift in that conversation and that entire narrative with is this normal is that you know your body. So in your experience, what you just shared, you know your body. 
You knew something was off. You are the only one who knows what your normal is, and that should be respected by everybody. Like your doctor may be able to interpret labs and, you know, look at, look at all of these advanced, you know, procedures and techniques and, and think about what, what do you actually need? But when it comes to your experience, you're the only one who knows that. And so in the book, I give a hormone symptom check. I think everybody should take this. I think when you get your period, you should know what, what is going on in your body and track that. The reason for that is because things are going to be irregular. Things are going to be off the first few years. That's normal. But if it persists, that's not normal. And we really should have a better understanding about how do our hormones function? How do we support them beyond just what do we do when things go wrong? And trust me, I put the protocols in the book of like, what do you do when things Mm -hmm. go wrong? Because life happens. Um, This is just, you know, the reality of the world that we live in is that we are inundated with a lot of things that can contribute to hormonal issues. But to your point, you know, when should you get things tested? Certainly, if you have any symptoms, you have any kind of concern, you want to get these tested. And if you don't feel right in your body and your doctor says, well, your labs are normal, it's potentially an issue with them not running the right labs, them not Mm -hmm. viewing the labs through the context of your symptoms, or them thinking you either have disease or you don't, and not really putting much thought into, is this person in front of me having an optimal experience in their body? And a key word, optimal, right? Because mm, yeah. we can look at labs or, you know, they could say, well, it's normal, but I'm having symptoms. I'm fatigued. I feel like yeah. shit. What is, I want to feel optimal. I want to be the best version of myself. So I know this is mm-hmm. going to be a very blanket type of question because it's it's complex. It's a lot to unpack, but let's just talk about symptomology a little bit. Yeah, what are yeah. some common symptoms that if, you know, a woman, whether it's, you know, middle age, premenopausal, even my age at 37, what are some things to pay attention to symptom wise that we could say something, something's not right here? Yeah. Okay. So like I said, hormones impact every system in your body. So there's a lot of ways that hormone imbalances can show up. And often when we talk about hormones, when we talk about hormone problems, most people go right away to ovarian hormones, estrogen, Mm -hmm. testosterone, progesterone. And as I highlight in Is This Normal, there's a hierarchy of hormones. I, I have a pyramid and at the very top, that is where you're going to find those sex hormones or ovarian hormones. And really the foundation of your health in the hormone scheme of things, but also your entire health is going to be with adrenal function and insulin. And then above that is going to be thyroid. And then at the tippy top, those are where the sex hormones are. And so these are like the big hormones that affect us. There's certainly more going on in the body. Like we don't usually talk about aldosterone and some of these other ones, but it's just important to understand these are the big ones where symptoms arise from. So if we're working from the bottom up, if you're having any kind of cortisol issues or adrenal issues, you might experience fatigue. You might have difficulty waking or headaches in the morning. And you might find that when you go to bed at night, you have a hard time falling asleep, staying asleep. You might wake up and feel hungry in the middle of the night. If it's an insulin issue... If it's really progressed, we're going to see skin changes. So there can be skin tags. There can be a velvety dark texture in the folds of your skin. So usually we'll see this on the neck or even in the folds where your thighs meet your groin. 
that can be a sign of advanced insulin dysregulation. And insulin is the hormone that it takes that glucose into the cell. So basically, you eat something, you have glucose in your system, that sugar, and insulin shows up to the cell and says, I vouch for them. Like, can you let, can you let glucose in? And then the cell accepts glucose. Um, so with insulin, you might have like these hangry attacks, as people call it. You might find that you're having just energy dips that are happening after you eat. And these can be other signs that that foundation of the pyramid isn't optimized. Now, above that, that's where we get into thyroid hormone. For thyroid hormone, that's another way fatigue can show up. We can have hair loss. We can have weight gain. We can have be feeling cold all the time, have dry skin, constipation, brain fog, uh, if I'm not making it clear, like every single system in your body can be impacted by this hormone. And then we get to the top, which is those sex hormones where I think everybody at least once has experienced some level of PMS, where before mm-hmm. your period, you're feeling maybe weepy, like you want to cry easily. You're feeling anxious. You are maybe having trouble sleeping. One off, this happened one cycle, not a big deal. Something that's really mild. It's like, oh, I noticed that, but it doesn't interrupt your life not a big deal. But if it's hijacking your life or you feel like, oh man, I'm flying off the handle. And then I realize, oh, my period's coming kind of situation. Yeah. We've got issues with estrogen and progesterone going on. Mm. And there's certainly way more I could talk about for hormone imbalances, but those are just some of the things that you want to be paying attention to. So we talk about hormone imbalances and and I think when I hear this a lot, or at least what I thought it was, I thought that was like, oh, everyone has it in their life at some point. Oh, you're at that mm-hmm. age, you're you're starting to go into premenopause, that's normal. But I feel like when I started to pay attention to my environment, like am I getting morning sun? Am I sleeping? What are my stress levels out like? I found that my hormones started to kind of balance out a little bit more, but personally, and this is a personal thing. And I tell everybody, you got to do what's best for you. I looked into HRT and um, Mm -hmm. I don't take estrogen or anything else, but I do take a very low dose testosterone and I take thyroid and I optimize my thyroid as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And it changed my life. What are your thoughts on HRT for women, especially women who are not quite menopausal yet? Are you for Mm. it? Do you feel like it's, it works? Yeah. Oh gosh. So HRT is such a valuable tool that's really been villainized for so long. We have been fear-mongered about it. And really this is, it's a form of like gatekeeping a really effective therapy. So you Mm. mentioned a few things there. And I think this is important that I, I kind of dissect this out. We're going to tease it out a little bit. So firstly, thyroid hormone. This is something that we'll hear all the time. People are like, I don't want to take thyroid medication. I will do like people will be like, I just want to do it with diet. I just want to do it, you know, this or that. And I am a nutrition scientist, so I'm all for it. I'm like, let's use diet in any way we can to support your health. But you need to know that if you have the number one cause of hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, I have this. Um, Mm. You may have enough tissue destruction that's happened by way of your immune system. You no longer can make thyroid hormone. And with that, you're going to have to replace that hormone. It is a non-negotiable. You cannot live without it. Will you die immediately? No. Will you die of something really awful? Uh, Probably. If you're hypothyroid for far too long, we can see major cardiac issues come about and you just don't have the same quality of life. What's interesting to me in this conversation 
is people will push back a lot and be like, no, I don't, I don't want to have thyroid hormone. Um, and a lot of that comes from the way that medicine has approached thyroid, really underdiagnosing, dismissing symptoms. It's been very problematic. And why is that? Well, because women are the number one people who get hypothyroidism. And we know how medicine does women dirty in a lot of, yes. lot of arenas, right? Yeah. With this, I want people to understand, like when it comes to diabetes, when you cannot make insulin, type 1 diabetes, autoimmune condition, destruction of pancreatic cells, no longer able to make insulin. Nobody questions that. Nobody says like, oh, I don't want to be on, I don't want to be on a medication. I want to be on hormones because there's been so much education around it. People have a very good understanding that people cannot live without insulin. The same is true of thyroid hormone. Insulin is hormone replacement therapy. Thyroid hormone is hormone replacement therapy. But the way we commonly talk about HRT when we say hormone replacement therapy is people think estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. And because menopause is a natural event, people have, you've been told that it's not necessary. What we now understand through research that's been around for decades is that without that estrogen, we have bone and heart degeneration. We also have brain degeneration. When you come to understand that the majority of dementia and Alzheimer's patients are women and that estrogen going down postmenopausally, now this is totally normal, but yet that estrogen being down is what's one of the risk factors. There's many risk factors, but it is a major one and it's modifiable. We have to start asking the question, like, are, are we really doing the right thing in medicine from withholding this or from, you know, the, 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 there was really just not good research before that was very fear-based and doctors were saying like, you're going to get cancer, you're going to have all of these problems. And now we're finding not exactly true. And in fact, you are going to ward off some cancers potentially. Like there are a lot of benefits of having these hormones. When you talk about testosterone, this is a controversial one because mm -hmm. one, people think women shouldn't have testosterone, especially like in the um, modern political climate. It's so weird to me how medical issues get politicized and now suddenly everybody's an armchair expert and then they just, they just throw around stuff. And so I'm seeing a lot happening on social media where people are like, women shouldn't be given testosterone because that's what they're giving all these trans people. And I'm like, this is not you. Yeah. Sit down, friend. Sit down, yeah, yeah. have a listen, no grab a cup of tea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so with testosterone though, it is absolutely essential in women's health. Now people always think testosterone for libido, for muscle mass. I talk all about all of this in my book, but I also talk about how testosterone is so important for immune health and immune function and regulation. Testosterone does a lot of things in everybody. Everybody, every human body on the planet has testosterone and it's really crucial for optimal health. And when it comes to like why testosterone is low, we always want to ask that question. And in the book, as I, I give a quiz and I give a protocol and I give the top reasons why these hormone imbalances exist and then when it's definitely a time to see a doctor. That way you, you understand more than just like, you have this issue, therefore do this. It's like, well, this is how you might have gotten there. Here's what to talk to your doctor about. A much more uh, holistic approach than most health books take. Most health books are like, <laughs> you've got X, like, you know, you put in X and Y, the output is Z, 
and that's it, a done deal. And I'm like, you should really understand this deeper so that you can understand the context of your life, what other things could be contributing because that can be so, so beneficial for not just your hormones, but understanding your health overall. So when it comes to testosterone, um, there's definitely a time and a place to give testosterone uh, hormone placement therapy. Sometimes we give DHEA as well. But we also want to ask the question like, what's going on with the ovaries? What's going on with our adrenal glands? And in someone who has had one of their ovaries removed, we may need to replace hormones. People always mm-hmm. think like you've got two ovaries and they just ovulate off and on. Like here's That's this one, next told. month this one. And they yeah. always make the same hormones. And then it's just like nothing is symmetrical in the body in that way. Like, yep. <laughs> and not everything looks and functions exactly the same. Exactly. Oh my gosh. And that's what I was told. I feel like I was gaslit from A to Z within the medical community. And I, I was doing research on this because I'm like, you know, I'm I'm a researcher. I'm a therapist. I'm like, I need to know. I want to know what the stats are. And I was dumbfounded by the amount of um, even re- the first of all, there's not a lot of research, but the little research that there is shows that women are mm-hmm. way more likely to be gaslit, particularly women of color, uh, mm-hmm. more than men, especially when it comes to pain levels and, and being taken seriously. And, yeah. you know, for me, it was really a really difficult process to even get solid information on what is it going to be like now that I only have one ovary. And I feel like I really never got that information. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, not even, I wasn't even really educated on diet and my environment. I would actually love to hear from you because I know that you have that nutrition background. Yeah. How does diet impact our hormones and what are some key examples of maybe where should we be focusing our diet? What types of food should we be eating for optimal hormone health? Because I think that's an important thing, what we put into our body. Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. Oh, you're absolutely right. And this is like... I think one of the best kept secrets is that you have so much power with your fork, (laughs) with like the the silverware you wield, maybe it's chopsticks, whatever it is, like you have so much power. I say that we were just eating pho last night and um, trying to get the toddler to eat with chopsticks sometimes. Good good job. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, it is something where when I say that it should feel empowering to you, not heavy dogmatic, like cumbersome. And if it does, then you've probably met diet culture. (laughs) Then you've probably met some of the fringe of the wellness industry, right? That are like everybody only eat raw plants or everybody only eat meat. Um, And the answer is usually somewhere in the middle of all of this, which I think is sometimes maddening uh, that people are like, why is it so much about, you know, the individual and not just like this cut and dry. And it's because it just depends on your body. And Mm -hmm. I think that we get into big trouble when we try to do this one size fits all. Um, you know, and, and I do just want to say to your point, you've mentioned gaslighting a couple of times and I have yet to validate that. And I do want to validate that. That is a very real thing. 
that happens in medicine. Um, I write about this extensively in the uh, sex of all kinds chapter of my book, which is, it's kind of funny because people are like, I didn't read that chapter. Uh, but that chapter starts with pain with sex. And when I tell people like, that's where it is, they're like, oh, I thought that was just going to be like how to have different kinds of sex. And I'm like, it is. And we start with pain with sex because when you're having penetrative sex and it's painful, you usually need alternatives, but you also need to know what is going on. And when I talk about in that chapter, some of the studies, so one study found that women who presented to the ER, um, they were, they would have severe stomach pain. Okay. At the emergency room, severe stomach pain in a woman, especially in her cyclical years could be ovarian torsion, life-threatening, going to lose your ovary, could be an ectomic, ectopic pregnancy, life-threatening, might also lose some, some body parts in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be appendicitis. Mm-hmm. That's also something that could turn life-threatening. It could be a lot of things that are life-threatening. But what this one study found was that women waited almost 33% longer than men. Men present with the same symptoms, don't have ovaries, (laughs) don't have like reproductive organs in that area that could potentially be killing them, right? Like could be life-threatening. I'm being kind of dramatic with the killing them, but it feels that way. You're not though, you're Um, not. (laughs) Somebody who's had an ovarian cyst and ended up with it ruptured and in the ER, I'm like, you feel like you're dying. You think you're dying. It is painful, yes. It is bad, yeah. But to think about that, like to think about that just because you present and your doctor's like, ovaries? just wait it out. You're in severe pain. My differential already has more on it because of the fact that you have ovaries and a uterus. And yet you're being told, just wait it out. Just, just wait it out. And then when you add on to that, you being a woman of color, that is even worse. I mean, there was Mm -hmm. that 2016 study that showed that, um, doctors falsely believed that black Americans had a higher pain tolerance. That's the one I read. Mm. And the disparity. So I talk about this in the book as well, where not only how pain is assessed, but how it's treated in children as well. This is the thing that like that 2016 study really got sensationalized in 2020 and rightly so. It should have been like before that, like making headlines everywhere. But there's also studies that show that if you were a black child, your pain management was far worse, like in terms of what you were offered, just the care around it is worse than other children. And that's problematic. That is yeah. super problematic. So we're going to talk about nutrition, but I did just want to touch on that because yeah. you had to advocate and you had to fight for yourself. And this medical gaslighting is a very real phenomenon, not because I say so, but because I've lived it you've lived it. All you have to do is listen to women, but that's okay. If you're one of those people that's like, we don't believe women. I need to study. They exist, friend. Take a trip to PubMed and you will find that. So right. that is that is my little rant about how like it's 2023 and this is still the damn thing that medicine's doing exactly. and it's hurting women. It, sh- it shouldn't be the situation. So let's talk about food because that's going to be something <laughs> that keeps you out of your doctor's office. Okay. So yes. When it comes to nutrition, I definitely go into this in the book and I provided a resource. It's at drbrighton.com slash ITN dash resources. Is this normal? ITN dash resources, which is a digital cookbook and meal plan for you to go through on a cyclical basis. And don't worry if you don't have a 28 day cycle, you can modify it. It's something that I just felt really passionate with the book that I gave a whole protocol. And I'm like, I just know with my patients, they're most successful when you lay out a template 
of how to eat and how to incorporate these things because this is never done at any point in our education system unless you study nutrition. And I just think that is really problematic. It's Mm -hmm. really problematic that people are not taught these things. And it's why like on the Instagram, it'll blow up every time that I take people through my stories. Like I'm just in the kitchen being, I'm just like, I am like such a lazy, like chop it up. Doesn't have to be beautiful. I don't even care. Make it happen. Like kind of meal maker. Like because I'm a mom and doctor, I got stuff going on. But right. I take people through these different these different aspects of how food can support your hormones. So, for example, uh, vitamin C. Vitamin C is going to be found in things like citrus. Yes, we all know that. But also bell peppers. Um, this is where I'm always like Mexican food is like one of the best health foods for your hormones. Um, it is supplying you with so much stuff to support your hormones. Not Taco Bell. Please don't come in the comments and try to be like Taco Bell. No, that's not Mexican food. Like. Right. Uh, my grandma would, she would roll over roll like over. it would be a problem. <laughs> so, so with vitamin C, bell peppers are an excellent source. Peppers of all kinds are an excellent source. And that supports the corpus luteum of the ovary. So after you ovulate, there is a temporary endocrine structure that produces your progesterone. Progesterone makes you feel really chill and calm, love with life, not having PMS. Vitamin C supports that. So eating more vitamin C-rich foods can help support not only your ovaries, but also your adrenal glands. The adrenal glands, which are two little glands that sit on top of your kidneys, they produce um, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, aldosterone, which regulates your blood pressure, DHEA, which is going to be your number one hero when you get into menopause because that's how you're going to get to estrogen and testosterone. Mm. They're so concentrated in vitamin C. They're one of the most concentrated tissues in the body that have vitamin C. So eating vitamin C, super beneficial for your hormones in that way. I like to teach people, you know, other things as well. So we talk about the micronutrients. So like vitamin C, vitamin B6, magnesium, everybody got to be eating magnesium. We want to have good moods. If we want to run our detox pathways for our hormones, we've got to have magnesium coming in. It's also going to help your sleep, going to help your cramps. Like who doesn't love all of that? And that's going to come like leafy green vegetables. Like, you know, when your mom said eat your vegetables, like she, she was right. She was right about this. Um, but I also like to talk about, Um, more of like the macros, like having protein, fat, fiber-rich foods at every meal. And fiber-rich foods is going to be your carbohydrates. So this is something in the book, I, I talk about how important it is to set up your plate in a way so you're getting as many vegetables as possible. And, and you can get fruits as well. Not a problem. Most people don't struggle with getting fruits. It's usually the vegetable issue. Back when I was getting my nutrition degree, The research had already shown us that seven to nine servings a day of produce, that was the like the way to avoid cancer, to avoid chronic disease, to like live long and prosper, if you will. And yet the food pyramid was like, have a couple of servings. And that wasn't what the science was saying. And that has really indoctrinated a lot of people to think that we don't need as many plants. We do need plants. And I would say we need more plants than we need grains. And that is really, you know, the whole idea of like the food, it always cracks me up when people are like, if anyone says 
not like to exclude a food group, like don't trust them. And I always laugh and I'm like, you mean this arbitrary categorization that we made of foods? Like, and also there's people who are lactose intolerant. You do understand they can't have dairy, right? Like this is a thing. And and it's only because of the way the food system subsidizes farmers and the politics around all of it and the dairy council and the meat council and all this that we got to these recommendations. It's not because of science. And so that's what I really aim to teach people is how to have this general template, how to understand what foods support your hormones, how to understand, you know, the how many vegetables we should be getting in, that we should have fat and protein and fiber with each of our meals, because not only is that going to help with keeping your blood sugar stable, keeping your hormones stable. It's going to support your gut health. It's going to help with body composition. So we retain muscle mass. We keep visceral adiposity at bay just so people are clear. We, I'm far less concerned if you have a booty than if you have fat packed around your, your organs. And that's when I say visceral adiposity, that's what it is. That is the fat that is in the midsection, but in around those organs, that is the most problematic when it comes to health. Mm. And I say all of this because I found not only the diet industry, but doctor, like, let's be real. It's been a lot of doctors who have been problematic saying things like eat less, exercise more. And like your BMI is everything. It's total bullshit. Your BMI is complete bullshit. Okay. I don't even care. I'm like, I want to know about like, Hip to, hip to waist ratio. I want to know about like, what are your cardiometabolic factors look like? like? These things are way more important and your nutrition and your lifestyle can influence all of this. And that is going to have a huge impact on your hormones. So I just said a whole lot of stuff. I'm going to stop talking so that you can interject and have questions. I love it, man. It's like, I'm trying to think of where I want to unpack this because there's so much that so many good points that you brought we took up. took a journey there. Yeah, we do. Um, I think that, you know, for me, like I, all right, I'm 37, about to be 38. And I have always been fit. It's never been a problem for me. I've been lifting weights for like 10, 11, 12 years. I did bodybuilding for a long time. But when I competed for the three years that I did, I was in complete adrenal fatigue. Because Mm. as you know, it's not really healthy for women to have like no body fat, right? Like I was under 10% for so long. And it looked great on stage. It did a it was a tornado zone in my body and my hormones. So Mm -hmm. six, seven years later, I'm still repairing those hormones. And for me, you know, I had to look at my diet, like I was doing the traditional eat rice, eat meat, and you know, weigh your food. And as long as you are under this body fat percentage, you're good. It wasn't about what I was eating. It was about the caloric deficit. And so now I'm to the point where all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I had, I gained 10 pounds. I have no idea where it came from, how mm-hmm. to get there. And I am struggling to get it. All, and I don't know why I am like, yeah. it's like all of a sudden my body just said, nope, we're not going to work with you no more. We're going to be resistant to everything you do. So when I hear you talk about the diet culture and how it's like, oh, just eat less, you're going to lose weight or just do this. And if you don't, you're just being lazy. And I'm like, no, it's not that simple. And then the BMI stuff, when I learned about the racial ties to the BMI and the history with that, (laughs) I'm just like, wait, what? (laughs) The BMI, when people like understand that like, it is the same thing that medicine has been doing all along, like for so long, like hundreds of years is that the white male body is the standard of health and anything that deviates from that is unhealthy and problematic. It's lies. It's lies. It's just a mathematician who like made it up. (laughs) 
Yes. And then we have social media that it's, it literally is just destroying women's mental health, our body health, and the way that we look at our body image. And I think that we need to have a little bit more grace with ourselves. And I'm speaking even to me right now, because this is something I'm not an overweight individual, but I still have body image problems that I'm working on because of what I was taught and what I was shown for so long. So I actually want to dive into that because I have a lot of listeners who um, have struggles with PCOS and other mm-hmm. issues that kind of go in that that triangle. I want to start out with this question. Is it harder for women with PCOS to lose weight or is it just as simple as they need to eat less? <laughs> so- so I know I the answer. But- laugh because like <laughs> it's just like the this whole concept. So um okay, so a couple things about eating less, especially when um it comes to women, is that yes, having that energy balance can be helpful in terms of weight loss. So what does that mean? That means having, you know, where you're burning more than you're eating, like that can be helpful. But it's not the end all be all of things. So I do want to say there is that piece. There is a point though, where you eat so little that your thyroid slows down, Mm -hmm. where you eat so little and you move so much that your cortisol starts rising. And those things are going to contribute to weight gain and you holding on to your weight. So if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, we need a lot more research. PCOS is what this goes by. Roughly 70% have insulin resistance. If we are not working on the insulin resistance piece, we're not going to move the needle when it comes to weight. Maybe you'll lose some, but you won't. It'll be an uphill struggle. And I say this because, as I said before, insulin helps let the sugar into the cells. When we've got insulin dysregulation, we're going to have a propensity to store body fat. This is a protective mechanism. Your body is protecting you. And so is it just a matter of eat less? No, it's usually let's increase our fiber, we, as women, we want to be hitting at least 25 grams a day. Uh, 25 grams a day of fiber, no more than 25 grams of added sugar. Honestly, less is better because, I mean, you're going to get sugar in other places. But there's a lot of a lot of foods that we come into contact with, processed foods that are really high in sugar. And that can contribute to the insulin dysregulation. We can have that visceral adiposity I was talking about. And we can also have inflammation as a way, uh, as coming about as how we're eating our foods, what we're selecting for food. So we want to be looking at the fiber. We want to be getting our vegetables up. We want to have quality protein because with PCOS, really for any woman, I want them building muscle mass. It's absolutely important. But just like, oh yeah, you can eat less and see some weight loss until a point. It's the same thing with training. It's not a more is better kind of situation. And I will, you know, just echoing what you said, my bikini fitness models and like competition models and the, um, the, the bodybuilder, like these women, they do struggle I, for a very long time to get their hormones back, depending on how, how extreme they were and how long they were at it. And did yeah. they take supplements? It, did they not? Yeah. Yeah. And it gets to a point where doctors are, you know, where doctors are like, well, you know, this is just part of getting older and, you know, saying that kind of rhetoric to them that in reality, it's that you, you had a metabolic crash, like your, yes. your metabolism really needs some TLC. So some of the same stuff works well for that situation. We want to get insulin regulated. We want to get inflammation down because if we're inflamed, we're actually going to see higher numbers on the scale 
And that can be because of water retention happening. Mm -hmm. But again, Mm -hmm. these are also mechanisms of your body protecting itself. We want to build muscle mass, but we also do know that like high intensity interval training, and honestly, you can do like eight to 15 minutes is like what you need for that visceral adiposity to to keep those numbers down as well. So with PCOS, it is possible to optimize your body composition. And I say it in that way because it's not always losing weight. When you are fit, you might find that the scale goes up, but you feel different in your body. Things Mm -hmm. are looking different. And I think we also need to recognize that bodies come in different sizes. And what we have been marketed to and told and what the BMI and the medical industry has also echoed is that bodies are supposed to be a certain size and a certain shape. And that's just not true. There's a lot that, that matters when it comes to that. Like there's, you know, our ethnicity and our genetics And I just want everyone to understand that, as I say in the book, you cannot look at someone and know their health. You cannot look at someone. There are times where you will see someone and people are like, oh, they're like that Kate Moss double zero and you run blood work on them and you're like, this is scary. This is scary. Like this, this, what we're seeing in terms of like your risk factors is scary. And so I think that it's really important for people to understand in that, you know, there's, there's like people that are like health at every size. And then there's the people who are like, no, if you promote any body type that isn't like this, this, like basically like a high school woman, like at times is what I feel like God is being put in front of me. And I'm like, I don't think, you know, I had babies, like things change. They're supposed to. And also the research tells me that as I get, you know, as I get closer to menopause and then past menopause, like I need a little more fat. I need a little more padding. I need a higher body mass because that's going to keep me from dying if I have an injury or an accident. Like it actually is associated with me living longer. So That, again, was a little bit of a side tangent. But just for people to understand that pushback of people being like, no, a body can only be healthy if it looks one way, it's false. 100%. Thank you for just validating that. There was um, a post that I saw with Jordan Peterson with, you know, half of his stuff is really good and then half of his stuff is like – you know, oh, problematic. And then you're I, like, oh, this is awesome. Oh God, I'm liking that guy's stuff. Like what's happening? Yes. It's very 50. <laughs> it's a love hate thing for me, but there was a post on, they had a uh, bigger bodied woman who was the cover on the cover of sports illustrated. And in my opinion, she wasn't that big. She was just curvy. And he made a comment how we shouldn't be supporting that narrative of, cause then we're supporting obesity in the country. And I'm like, she's not obese. And how are you going to know she's healthy unless yeah. you run labs? Because to me, she looked, she looked great. She's just a little thicker. So I love, I love that you've just validated that unless we do labs on somebody, you really can't Mm-hmm. eyeball somebody's health because somebody can be my size, but be completely unhealthy and living an unhealthy lifestyle, getting two hours of sleep at night, not getting morning sun, eating like shit, total chronic stress in their life. Adrenals yeah. are through the roof. You know, we just don't know. So, you know, just for anyone listening, you know, just know that bodies come in all different sizes and that's okay. But I, I do think that it's up to us to take control of our own health. I want to switch gears a little bit though. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sexual health mm-hmm. and some stigmatic stuff. You know, we we all have vaginal discharge. We're yeah. women. But society has taught us that your discharge is supposed to smell like flowers. It should taste like fruit. And if it doesn't, <laughs> there's something wrong with you. So let's yeah. talk about what's normal with vaginal health and what's abnormal. And even the things that are abnormal, are those common? 
Oh man, I literally say in the book, like, you're not a fruit. Like, right. why is it? They're like, mm, you should smell like clementines. There's old, I, everybody go Google this, like um, old douche ads, like from the 70s. And it was like, this guy, this like swanky guy laying behind his lady and the advertising <laughs> reads like, um, she, like, there's nothing wrong with her. She just knows I really like apricots. And it's, I'm like, oh what? They need God. a freaking apricot. Like, <laughs> wow. But it, what, it, what is like at the underpinning of that messaging? You should shift and change your body for the male preference. Or I don't know. I'm raising two boys. Maybe the messaging should be they should be body literate and like female body positive. That if these, if we're having periods, if we're having discharge, we're having all these things. It's not an ick. I have to say, I like married a really like a man that I didn't ever have to teach him any of this. Like, good job to his mom, where he's oh, just yeah. like, yeah, bodies do what bodies do. And I'm like, yeah, I like, love that. Bodies are kind of weird sometimes. They do things that, <laughs> and you're like, well, is this normal? So I have a whole chapter on discharge for this reason. And then there's lots of times in the book where I talk about like the scent of a vagina, the discharge, and like when things are not normal. So we can get into that. But I do want to tell everybody who's listening, vaginas are supposed to smell like vaginas. Vaginas are supposed to taste like vaginas. And you have your own signature scent. Just like your armpits may not smell the same as somebody else's, like same as down there. In fact, Sometimes the scent isn't even your vagina. It's the glands that live in your groin that are exactly the same as your armpits. And oh. the, so they're sweating. And so we all expect that like, it's really funny how society is like, armpits smell, pass. Um, you know, groin smell, if they belong to men, pass. But if a, if you're a woman, you know, you've, you should never smell. Like you should always smell delightful and wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Says who? Like, how did we even get this in our mind? Well, I had it in my mind for a long time. Trust me. I talk about and be on the pill about how I thought, oh, I'm supposed to smell like vanilla or berries and champagne. And I slather myself in endocrine disruptors for years. So I don't judge anybody because I'm like, friends, friends, I got the misinformation <laughs> too. So when it comes to discharge, if it ever smells like fish, those are amines. That is a sign that a bacteria that normally inhabits your vagina has overgrown because of a pH shift, an elevation in a pH, which happens to be one of the big fenders is semen. So keep that in mind when then what point happens the to me. Well, yeah. hold on. So I, okay. I, I told my best friend, I am allergic to semen. Like if mm -hmm. I get used to it, if I'm with a guy consistently, it stops. But if I am with a guy and we're not, and mind you, I haven't been for a long time, but you know, new relationship, let's say, and I'm on, I have an IUD. So like my last relationship, we weren't using condoms. I swear to God, I got BV mm -hmm. every other flipping month for the first six months. I was like, I'm allergic to his dick. I am. <laughs> <laughs> so semen allergy is a thing. Uh, just for people who are curious, it is mm. a thing. I talk about it in the book. Um, you actually have, you can get welts. Like the semen lands on your, wow. your thigh and you're like, why is there a rash there? What's going on? So that can happen. What you're describing is like you have a new partner and we can see BV is you're at higher risk for that when you have a new partner. So we can mm. see those shifts happen. And the vagina is supposed to be acidic. It is. It's, it's acidic. But semen is alkaline. 
certain lubes can also contribute to the problem as well. Um, as can things like using vaginal melts and using, using anything that can disrupt the pH. And then if you're having, um, sex close after your period, period blood disrupts your pH as well. Cause blood is not wow. acidic because that would be bad. That would be wow. bad friends. Uh, so, you know, that there's a lot of these different ways of like when you time sex, who you're having sex with. And so I talk about that in the book. I also give a bunch of different treatment approaches of like, you know, here's the conventional approach. And then here's things that you can also do at home because sometimes the conventional stuff doesn't work. And sometimes it's happening at like Saturday morning and you're like, I just need something right now. So that's the bacterial vaginosis. You can have other odors. You know, typically with yeast infection, there isn't much of an odor, but there, there can be. And some people will say it smells like baking bread. Like it smells very much like, you know, fermented beer, you know, that, well, how else do you have beer? It's fermented. That yeast kind of smell. And then, so in the book, I actually give charts on like, okay, if your discharge has this particular color, if it has this odor, if it has this texture, this is what might be going on. This is what's normal. This is what's not normal. And this is when to definitely see a doctor. That is so validating that I'm not like going crazy that it's not just me. So ladies, if you need to literally fast forward this podcast and have your spouse, your partner, your man, your brother, your dad, anyone listen to this, please educate them because it is not an STD. <laughs> I think women are told that if your vaginal discharge doesn't smell perfect, that, oh, you must be slutty. You must be mm. sleeping around with a bunch of guys or you must not be clean. And that's just not the case. Our bodies are complex and like you said, our pH balance can change and it can change from anything. We can take medication and get a yep. yeast infection, you know, Absolutely. so <laughs> I think, I think the more that men are educated on it, the less stigma that will be behind it. And then, you know, women would be more apt to maybe getting, getting assistance or not feeling shame for the way that their body smells because it's just a body and that's just mm -hmm. part of life. So thank you for validating that. Um, let's talk about, let's keep going into the sex subject. Cause I think this is important for women. Um, in the book, you talk about, you know, orgasms and, you know, sexual health. For mm -hmm. women that are struggling with this area of their life, where do they start with that? Why do so many people act like the clitoris is a mystery, you know, and, mm. and really, <laughs> I feel like that's something that is stigmatized and even women have shame around, around their sexual health. Uh, what's yeah. your advice to that? Gosh. So, you know, the, I think to unpack it all is to under, like, we have to start with the understanding that we have been taught shame and that medicine that was dominated by men, psychology to, you know, psychiatry to, um, you know, clinical practice dominated by men started these narratives, these ideas that the clitoris only exists for pleasure and women shouldn't have that much pleasure, right? Like they shouldn't, it was a threat. To them. Mm. There was um, in the audio book, I like, cannot speak French, but I talk about how in the 1500s, uh, the French, there was a French physician who named the clitoris, it's membre en tout, which is shameful member. Mm. That's what it was called. Wow. That was the name for the clitoris, was a shameful member. Did anyone call the penis a shameful member? Were we mm. doing that? No, nope. we were not doing that. So that's really at the underpinning. There is, I talk all about like it's a it's a clitoral conspiracy that medicine cut the clitoris out of anatomy, out of teaching in medicine. They kept that information. They literally chose wow. to keep this information from people. And so understand that 
the shame that you're feeling, that's just somebody put that on your doorstep and you brought it in. You were like, oh, okay, I'll just bring this in. Like, cause that's what I'm supposed to do. It was never yours. Just dump it off. I say that so easily. (laughs) Here I am in my 40s, still working on it. Knows all the things I know, knows all the research, knows the history, still working on it because that's Mm -hmm. just part of the human journey. We find ourselves in, in this very century, at this very moment in time. So when it comes to your sexual health, you firstly need to understand that you are absolutely deserving of pleasure. And pleasure can look like a lot of things. We talk a lot about the orgasm. We hype up the orgasm because they feel good. They're amazing. They do great things for your hormones and your health. I talk all about it in the book. However, when you ask people and they don't know, they, like you don't know who they are and you're like, tell me best sex of your life, what made be- for the best sex of your life? They actually say things that surprise a lot of people, which is empathy, connection, actually feeling like you had a moment in time with this person. And mm-hmm. it was it's less emphasis on the orgasm. And I think understanding that is so important because firstly, we need to understand the clitoris. We need to understand that the majority of women have an orgasm by stimulating the clitoris, not by vaginal penetration as we've all been taught by sex ed and every single movie that's out there. So it's understanding our anatomy, being able to communicate around it, understanding our pleasure, and then also, you know, understanding that it doesn't always have to be about the orgasm. And sometimes releasing the sex expectation of like, you have to have penetrative sex or you have to have an orgasm can allow you to have a really pleasurable experience that later can help you achieve that orgasm if that's your goal. Yeah, I think that the stigma has been on, you know, if you if women are having pleasure, that's shameful. And you shouldn't and I think I think religion had a lot to do with it, especially like with history. And I think women have been living with this up until like I would say the last couple of decades, we've really started to explore women's sexual mm-hmm. health that hey, we're we're not just here to have babies. <laughs> we yeah. we can have multiple orgasms, which men can't. We can still enjoy ourselves. But I do agree, connection is really important. Like when I think about the best sex that I've had, it's always been connection with somebody. So for somebody who maybe has never had an orgasm, is that normal? Because some women haven't. Yeah. If you've never had an orgasm because you've never tried, then of course that's normal. And if you don't know how and you're not sure, then I mean, I teach a lot of this in the book for you to understand. But It's something that if you've never had an orgasm, I think people right away jump to there must be some dysfunction, there must be something wrong with you. But it can be very difficult to achieve an orgasm when you've got shame hijacking your arousal, where it's hard for you to be present. You know, we were talking a lot about the um, the body image issue is such a common thing to hijack arousal that you'll be in the moment and then you start thinking about your body. You start spectating. You like leave your body and you're like, oh God, like what does it look like right now or what's going on? And that when you are so up in your head or out of your body about things, it's really difficult to achieve an orgasm. And so if you've never had an orgasm, One, we want you to try. If that is something you want to achieve, you got to try. And one of the best ways to try is honestly with a toy. They are designed Mm -hmm. and made for exactly this. And then the other thing is you may need to meet with a sexual counselor or a sexual therapist to unpack what might be going on. But I will tell you that 
in the you know sexual counseling, sexual therapy arena, there is a model that it is the simplest model of approaching things, and it starts with permission. And that is what the majority of people need to usually overcome something that they're viewing as sexual dysfunction. I don't like dysfunction as a term. I like adaptation. I like I like a lot of different terms, but often medicine is diagnosing things as dysfunction, correct? So with that, often just giving someone permission, permission to explore, permission to see what feels good, permission to proceed with pleasure without the expectation of orgasm, but just getting to know your body and to understand that orgasms are an act of mindfulness. So the place to start isn't always just being like, I'm going to do this to have an orgasm, but maybe I'm going to do this to be present in my body and to just understand what feels good to me. The majority of people, when you give them permission to do the thing that they want to do or they want to explore, they can overcome a lot of their concerns. I love that. That's great advice. When when you look back at all the years of work that you've had and all the patients that you've dealt with, you know, what, what's like one solid piece of advice that you would give to women who are listening right now, who are struggling with either their hormone health or sexual health? I know that's a blanket question to ask, but what would you say to the women listening? I would say chart your symptoms write them down, understand what is going on for yourself, quantify that. So if it's heavy periods, how many tampons, pads are you changing? Like get that down. So when you seek help, you can't be gaslit. It's very hard to gaslight somebody who has it written down in front of them. And your doctor says, I don't think your period pain was that bad. And you're like, but I vomited for two days and I took all the (laughs) ibuprofen and it did nothing. Like I have it written right here. It's a lot harder to gaslight you. And so getting not only intimate and knowing your body, but writing it down, quantifying it, tracking your own data can not only help you advocate for yourself, but you can solve a lot of things that are happening for you as well. That's amazing advice. Okay. So I know that you have your book. We have it right here. I'm going to link it for everyone. It's called, Is This Normal? I would just say the book looks... Oh, sorry. Yes. It looks so good with your background. <laughs> yes, I love it. And so this is so this is my my next book to read. I love that you outline like when people a lot of people don't know what to do. You can read a book and it's like, okay, but how do I apply that? I love that you're giving protocols with what people can do to start changing their diet, change their lives. So where can they get your book? We're also going to link it. Is it available? I think I heard that you have an audio book. And what other projects are you working on? Yes. So the book, you can get it at local bookstores. You can request it, support your indie bookstores. You can also get it at Barnes and Nobles and Amazon. Everybody's buying books there these days. Um, and right now I'm actually working on expanding our women's supplement line. So we have a hormone supportive supplement line and we're working on expanding that so that we can really help address where the holes exist right now and use some of the combinations of supplements and ingredients that I've used in my practice, but put it, make it a lot simpler. So it's in a single cap, but yeah, for people who don't know, I have a Dr. Brayton supplement line. I actually started it because my, so back a long time ago when I was studying nutrition, I had my graduate project and research was on supplements, supplement industry, and just really having my eyes open to 
the fact that supplements are not well regulated, that you don't always know the quality that there is um, in them. And, you know, people always point to being like, well, supplements aren't regulated. So instead choose pharmaceuticals, like pharmaceuticals are regulated, but the pharmaceutical companies, a lot of them own the supplement companies and that's why they're doing what they do. Mm. So keep that in mind. But for me, I was, you know, pregnant with my son. Um, this was over 10 years ago and I'm like, I want a prenatal I can trust that's been screened that I know doesn't have, you know, heavy metals in it and all of these things. And it was very, very difficult to find that. So I was like, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it myself and make better supplements. I was actually on Facebook and your, I think I'm telling you the algorithms are freaking weird. It scares me. I I was going to interview you. We already had it down. And all of a sudden you pop up on my Facebook and I'm like, oh, I know this person. And I was actually reading through the comments on your supplements, specifically uh, the the PCOS line that you have. And Mm -hmm there was a lot of good reviews. A lot of people were saying that they were taking, and I'm, and I'm, this is not sponsored. This is not an ad y'all. I was literally reading through the comments and a lot of people were saying great things about the PCOS line that you had and how it was actually helping with their symptomology. So, um, I actually will echo that, that I, I did actually read the comments of people that were legitly using. So if you have PCOS or you're struggling with your hormones, definitely check out the line because supposedly there's a lot of people that it's helping and, and helping their lives. And that's a big, big deal, especially for the quality of lives, especially for those with PCOS. So I will link everything for everyone to find your book, to find you, to follow you on Instagram, um, and to check out your supplement line. And I just thank you and give you my gratitude for coming on the show and sharing your nuggets of wisdom. So thanks again for coming. Yeah. Thank you. This was such a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. 